Oh, good. I got my... Excellent. Thank you. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. All right. I am really, really um, honored uh, just to be asked to be with you guys tonight. And uh, I'm really excited uh, to see people that I know. I know you people. I know the Burns people. I love them. They're really great. And uh, other people that I kind of know and other people that I don't know at all. So either way, whatever, wherever you fall in that, I'm happy to see you. And uh, I'm really grateful to be here. It just, it feels like, um, it really just does feel like a great honor. So thank you for allowing me to be here with you tonight. So now this whole second row here is empty and much of the first row also. Uh, and the second row over here. Is that, do you feel like that, that are you trying to tell me something with that? Are you scared? Is anyone brave enough to get up and come to the second row? Yes, thank you, thank you, I love it. Look at this, the, the second row still awaits. Ah, oh, thank you very much, that's good. See, you're gonna get a lot more out of the sermon. If you sit closer, you actually get a lot more out of it, which is, which is really great. Thank you very much. Anybody else? No, if you're all comfortable where you are. Okay, good, I'm, and I'm good with that, no, no judgment at all. Okay, so, where, oh, that's my name. Okay, that right there is my family. And um, I just kind of wanted to give you a picture. I've got four kids. Uh, we used to try to take really nice pictures together, you know, where a photographer comes and you, and you pose and do all that. After several years, we gave that up and we realized we, we don't take pictures well that way. If we're lucky enough to get a selfie with all six of us in it, then we, we feel like that we're doing pretty good. So my daughter, JL, is 23. Uh, she graduated from Pepperdine a few years ago and uh, she started grad school at USC then realized she wanted to study something different, so now she's trying to figure out if she wants to go somewhere else and do something else, so she's busy figuring out her life. My son Jonathan is 20, and he has a beard and some hair that is definitely admirable and enviable, and uh, so he's, he's really working on that and figuring that out, but he is incredibly creative and loves uh, to play. Now, if I say Dungeons and Dragons, does that scare anybody? Okay, yes, it scares you or no? We're okay? All right, so he's, a, he's an incredible DM. And uh, we've been playing D&D, I've been playing D&D with him for the last year. We play every Wednesday night. Uh, it's hilarious. It's like five 19 and 20 year olds and me. And, uh, but we have, a, we have a really good time. And then we got Jacob is 17. He turned 17 a little bit ago. Incredible athlete, great musician. And then Brooklyn is 13 and she is the head of the family. She's, she uh, has appointed herself head of the household. And she is in charge. She tells us all what to do and when to do it and how she wants everything to happen. Um, and I also, I didn't include a picture, but we had a dog. And uh, we, we got a dog a year ago. Um, and she's just awesome. Her name is Hope. And uh, we needed her at a time when we needed some hope. And uh, that's what we went and we found her. She is a dorky, uh, they, they call them dorkies. It's a dachshund-dorky mix. So they call them dorkies, which I feel like is both hilarious and offensive at the same time. Uh, but I think it's great. She's wonderful and she's awesome. But I tell you that to tell you this about the dog because Tracy and I have had, I, I want to give you a little insight into our life uh, and some things that have been going on with us that will hopefully make you feel better about yourself. Um, so Trace and I have the dog. You don't have to stare at the picture if you want. Here, I'll just move that away. What's after the picture? Because then it makes me feel embarrassed. There we go. Okay, good. So, um, so the, the dog sleeps with us in the bed. Now, Trace and I have been having some issues just trying to figure out our nighttime routine and everything that is going on. We're at that age where uh, the discussion about the temperature in the room has started to become a really big discussion because Tracy has some hormonal things going on that causes the... The, the, the temperature become an issue, and uh, some some of you're nodding your head. You know, I'm talking about others. Don't even worry about it. You'll figure it out at some point. But anyhow, so we're always talking about uh, how hot 
the room is or, or not. And then the dog loves to sleep right next to Tracy and gets up either on her face or next to her and, and her, you know, in the crook of her legs or something. And, and so we're trying to figure that out. And then I'm laying there in the bed. And if I have not been necessarily eating well or really exercising well, uh, I can start to snore a little bit more. So I got a snoring issue going on. So we've got these issues happening at night, which is a little bit embarrassing for all of us. But Tracy the other day was on Facebook and she found a comedian, this woman who was talking about, it was like a 45 minute set that she did, but in the middle, she was talking about how her and her husband, she's going through menopause, they're arguing about the heat in the room, the, she's got two dogs, one of them that sleeps on her face, and then, uh, and then her husband is next to her because he's eating a lot of white flour, so he's snoring a lot more. So Tracy's like watching this, thinks it's hilarious, and, uh, and then she's like, okay, I gotta send this to Jay. So now my wife is not necessarily, she gave me permission to say this, so I'm not, I'm not outing her, but she's not necessarily like the most technically like super knowledgeable person. Um, and, but she, she knows how to get on Facebook and look at things. And then so she, in her mind, she was sending me this, uh, this clip of this comedian on Messenger. So it was gonna come only to me. And you know, she tagged me in it, she wanted me to see it, she thought it was gonna be funny, and we were gonna share it and have a laugh. Which is really great. I'd love to be able to do that. And, and my wife and I share things. We share things together. So she, she put it on there. And then like within the hour, she started getting notifications that somebody else was like liking it and commenting on it. And of course, my mom and lives in Oklahoma is like, oh, it's so funny. And then Tracy starts panicking like, wait a second. Why does somebody know about this? How do they know about this? What is going on? And she goes on Facebook and realizes that she didn't just send it to me. She posted it on her page. Okay, now, this is not necessarily would be a bad thing. Except like I told you, the title of this 45 minute clip, uh, or, or this, this clip was 45 minutes, the title of it was from the, the comedian's first bit, which is, my 22 year old daughter is the devil. <laughs> no lie. So this is on Thursday, this happened, and my wife posted on Facebook a clip, tags me, and the title of the clip is, my 22 year old daughter is the devil. Okay, now, I don't have a 22-year-old daughter, so you'd think I'd be pretty free and clear. I do have a 23-year-old daughter, um, and she does not live at home with us, but she does go on Facebook. And so, <laughs> the next, so Tracy immediately takes it down, and she's sweating, like, who saw that? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. I'm like, babe, don't worry about it. I'm sure it was like, what, an hour? Nobody saw it. It's not a big deal. So my daughter comes over the next day, and she's like, so... Mom, <laughs> how are you feeling? I mean, what's this thing about your 22-year-old daughter being a devil? And so we had, we had to have a long discussion, and she had to extend a lot of grace uh, to us about uh, you know, putting her out there like that. But So that was, that's, that's just a little glimpse uh, into our world, into how things work. And uh, hopefully that makes you feel a little bit better about yourself, because I'm sure that this room, that this group of people, you guys are super technologically advanced, that you don't ever make mistakes like that, or you've never done anything to embarrass yourself. So uh, at least we're starting off on that foot, right? I'm also just really happy to be here because um, I know uh, also, I think that this church, from what I've heard, the last few years, everything has been like super smooth. And you guys are completely, like, everybody is locked in. Everything's been going great. You guys don't have any problems. This is what I've heard. Is that right? So everything is good. Well, that's, this, that's why I really wanted to be here because in my personal life and in my personal ministry, I've been actually, it's been a really rough season. The last two years have been super, super tough. 
Um, and uh, I, I can talk about that a little bit today, but, but really I just needed to be somewhere where everybody was kind of perfect and didn't have any issues. So that's, that, that's why I wanted to come here. So again, you can feel better about yourself today. So we're, so we're starting off in a good spot. Um, uh, it has been, uh, let's see, I've been, I, I became a Christian in 1993. Uh, my wife and I got married in 1990. Um, I was barely 21, she was barely 22. We were music students at the University of Central Oklahoma. And uh, we got married in 1990, and then we moved to Dallas, Texas two years later in 92. We were there for a year, and then we moved to Los Angeles in 1993 uh, for Tracy to go to graduate school. And so she was going to go to USC. She did go to USC. And within just a few weeks of us getting there, somebody reached out to her, invited her to church uh, in, uh, at USC in the campus ministry. And we became Christians there, got baptized in November of 1993. Uh, we were in the central region there for about nine months, and then we moved to the AMS. Uh, in 1994 and have been in the same ministry then ever since. And uh, I love it. I love uh, the Turning Point Ministry now is what we're called. It's a great group of people. Uh, so much good uh, that happens there. So many people have become Christians, so many victory stories, and, uh, and it's really, really great. Um, we went into the ministry. We got hired by the church in 2000. And, um, and so we, we, we came on, uh, for those of you that may have been around the Los Angeles Church of Christ in the year 2000, you remember what was going on between 2000 and 2003, it was just a really fascinating time. Um, but we, I, I loved being able to be in the ministry uh, because I, I, just, I just, I think what happened was I grew up knowing the Bible and loving the Bible, but then I didn't really see a place where it could work. And where people would put it into practice. And so God brought me to this church then in 1993. And I was just so excited by it. This is all that I wanted to do with my time and with my life. Was help, help the church to grow. And help, help the church to really become what it could become. And uh, so we uh, have loved being in the ministry. We've been there since 2000. So 20 years uh, we've been serving full time in the turning point. Which has been great. Um, we adopted our youngest two kids when they were five and nine. And um, they, their biological siblings uh, came from uh, uh, Orange County, this is where they grew up. They came into our family at five and nine, and they're really amazing, and they're really great. And, uh, but obviously, trying to create, trying to blend a family when you already have a, a system happening. You know, my older kids were 13 and 15 at the time, and then adding a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. It, it just, man, it created a lot of stress and chaos uh, within our family. Uh, and so the last eight years have been um, just a little bit intense, you know, as we've been trying to adjust to that and figure out how do you do that and how do you, how do you have, uh, how, how do you make your family bigger and have, have everything work. And we've had some great victories. We've done some really stupid things. We've made some bad decisions. We've made some really good decisions. We've had some great times. We've had some really hard times. Um, the last couple of years, it's, I feel like that God brought us to a point to where, um, he was like, I'm, you've, you've, had a, you've had a good run where everything has been good and kind of comfortable and you've been busy. And now it's time to stop because I need to help pull some things out of your heart that are really deep and that if you don't deal with uh, could really shipwreck you and shipwreck your faith and shipwreck your family. And so uh, I don't know what terminology that you want to use, but um, the closest thing I would say is I think I got close to, to just being burnt out um, on just trying to do life and everything else. 
And so about a year and a half ago, kind of hit the wall with a lot of different things. And, and uh, so God has been taking us. He's so good because he's been taking us through this, this time of um, just relearning. Relearning who he is. Learning how to follow him more. Learning how to be with him in the desert. Uh, learning how to hear his voice. Uh, learning how to not judge myself based on what I do. Uh, but just based on his love for me. And uh, it's, it's been a really great experience. Um, but even part of that, go, going through that, I think get, getting to that point of burnout was, was some relational challenges. And I came up against some uh, relational challenges with the people that I thought, uh, you know, you got your people who, you, this is your ride or die people, like you're, everything's going to be good forever. And this is who I thought uh, I was with, with, with certain people. And then there was a lot of relational strain and some damage that I did to those relationships. And so it's been, a, a, a God, I feel like God was like, okay, you need, to, you need to stop worrying about your job. I'm gonna take away the comfort of some of your closest relationships because I need your attention. I just want you and you're too busy to focus on me. I just want you and I want your heart. And that is a very scary place to be. It's a, uh, I was mad about it. Some days I still am. Um, I'm scared. Like, okay, well, what, what do you do with that? What, what happens if I, you know, I mean, because there's certain parts of me that wants to always look like everything is going great. Um, what happens if I look like it's not going great? What are people going to think? And so I've been kind of on this journey to figure out, okay, well, who does God want me to be? And how do I do this? And I, I, I come across... Uh, this podcast that has been really helping me. It's called Bema, uh, Bema podcast. And so I, I but in, in this podcast, he goes, he goes through a lot of the scriptures and he talks about this idea of trusting the story. You have to trust the story. God has you in a story and you have to learn to trust that story. When things get scary, you trust the story. Um, and the turning point, our mission statement is helping people find their place in God's story. So one of the things that we talk about a lot is that, um, you know, too many times people can feel like that they are there to accomplish their life. It's like they're the, the hero in a movie. And then God is one of the supporting characters in that movie. And he's like the fairy godmother that is there to give them what they need exactly when they need it. Right. Yeah. And that the God is there to help us accomplish our dream. And that, you know, we have a dream and we want to work towards it and God is going to help us be able to do that. But God actually is the one who's writing the story. God is the chief character. And all of us just get the opportunity to be in his story. It's not our story, it's his story. And we need to find our place in his story. And God has this story going on. We need to come into that. Instead of expecting him to give us what we want, we need to go, God, what do you want? And help me to do that. So I've been really trying to figure this out and trying to kind of understand this. So I've been really going through this concept of I need to trust the story and I need to be able to do this. But one of the things that when, when you're trying to figure out can you trust the story, you have to ask this question is can you trust the storyteller? If you're going to trust the story, you have to be able to, per to trust the person who is telling the story, right? So then that brings us to, okay, well then how do you feel about God? What are your questions about God? Do you have any doubts? If you don't have any doubts about God, there's something wrong with the way that you're examining your faith, in my opinion. 
Now, I'm not talking about the, the, you know, obviously we all need to have super strong faith. But like if you don't, if you don't have moments where you're like, now wait, wait a second, what does this mean? Then you're not actually being intellectually honest about how you're approaching your own faith. Now, I know that that is a scary statement to make, and I'm not, I'm not trying to rock anybody's world here. But here's what I believe is that the scriptures are actually written in a way to bring out the questions that we have and expose our doubts. So that we can deal with those and lean into the story of the scriptures and then find the answers that God wants. And I mean, it's, there's no way that you can actually go through life with the things that go on and not have doubts about like, God, are you sure that this is what you want? Are you sure that everything is working out the way that it's supposed to work out? Are you sure? Now, we, I mean, I can come back to like, but I know that God is good. I believe that God is real and I believe that he's there. But all of us at some level have to have some kind of like, man, can I really trust who God is? And so that today I wanted to just kind of talk with you about something that has helped me to believe that God can be trusted. And, it, and it's just, it, it's an idea that, that comes up in Genesis chapter one in the creation story. And it proves to us that God can be trusted. And so I want to ask you to kind of go with me on this journey and kind of open up your mind to this as, as we're going through it. So now Genesis, <coughs> Genesis chapter 1 is one of these, one of these chapters. It's the, it's the creation story, right? In the beginning, what happened? Anybody know? God created the heaven and the earth. Thank you very much. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You've probably heard this before. And then he goes on and he says what happened on the different days. On this day did that, on this day did that, on this day did that. And this is something that this idea of Genesis 1 can really rock people's faith with the way that we engage with it. For instance, if you have always grown up believing God just did this, God just created the world, and then you go to college, you graduate from high school, and you go to college, and you get into a college class, and your college professor or some of the other people in your class are going to go, are you serious? You actually believe that? That's ridiculous. And everyone in your class will go, that's stupid. Why would you believe that? And all of a sudden, you're faced with this dilemma of, wait, do I completely believe everything that I have been told or everything that I've read? Do I believe it literally? Or wait, but they're saying it could be something else. And then how do I approach that? Now, what happens to a lot of people then when they're faced with those kind of questions is that they just go, you know what? This is ridiculous. Why, why would God write it this way? Why would God write Genesis 1 in a way that would put me in this position where I could be embarrassed when I'm talking to other people? Why would God do that? If that's the kind of God that he is, I don't really want to follow him. And so people's faith starts to die because they don't know how to process Genesis chapter 1. Because then they, they get into, okay, is this, uh, is this a scientific thing? And like science says that, well, it was evolution and then there was the Big Bang and it was millions of years. But if we go by the Bible and it's literal, then it was only 4,000 or was it 6,000 years? We're not really sure. How do you do that? And this, well, you know what? This is crazy and forget that. I just want to watch reruns of The Office and I'm fine. You know, and we, and we, can, we can go there. Our, our faith starts to, to, to go, kind of go backwards. So here's what I, I'm not going to address whether or not uh, Genesis chapter 1 is exactly right in terms of being literal seven days of creation. And it was this way. And, and, and I'm not going to say you can't ever believe anything about science. That's not what I'm here to talk about today. Just for today, I want you to suspend all of those questions. Just for today, I want you to put all that aside and, and just go with me as I'm trying to say that Genesis chapter 1 is a beautiful poem. Okay, Today we're going to look at it as a poem. 
I mean, now, you can have different opinions about what it is, and tomorrow you can go back to all that. Actually, later on tonight, you can go back to all that if you want. But for the next 20 minutes, I want you to go with me believing that this is a poem. Can everybody do that? Okay, now, I'm going to prove to you that Genesis chapter 1 is a poem. In a poem, there is generally beautiful things such as cadence and rhythm, and the way that the words are put together is important, right? Roses are red. Violets are they're violet, aren't they? Why are violets blue? I've always wondered that. But in poems, there's you rhyme, certain things rhyme, or there's limericks that, that come around, and it makes sense because it goes with a certain rhythm, and there's certain things that come up. And so when if you're looking at poetry, you would look for certain things like that. You would look for cadence and, and things that, that would tend to repeat themselves and really, really cool things within the text. And so that's what we find, actually, when we look at Genesis chapter 1. You see this a lot. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then on the second day, God created this. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. On the third day, God created this. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Right? So you see this cadence really start to come up. What's another one? And God saw that it was good. Every time that he does something, it says, God saw that it was good. It's cool. It's a beautiful poem as it goes through there. Now, why, why would God write a poem, okay? I'm going to come back to the poem in just a second, but I want you to think about who was the first audience to read the book of Genesis. Who were the first people that read the book of Genesis? It wasn't Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were not the, the, the first intended audience, right? Does anybody know who wrote the book of Genesis? Most scholars think what? Moses. Exactly. Moses was the one who wrote the book of Genesis. How's your Old Testament history? Everybody pretty good? All right. I know it. I, it's got to be better than that response that you just gave me. I know that you know this, okay? So when you go through Genesis, you have Abraham, who's the father of faith. Abraham had a son. Does anybody know his name? Isaac. Thank you. Isaac had two sons. What were their names? Jacob and... Esau, they were twins, right? And then Jacob went on and he had a lot of sons. Anybody know how many? Twelve. He had twelve sons. One of them was Joseph. He got sold into slavery. He went to Egypt. He became like the prime minister there. All his brothers came down. He rescued them from the famine and all that kind of stuff. And then the Israelites were there for 400 years in Egypt. They became slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then Moses came in. Right? Moses, he grew up in the palace, and then he comes back to Pharaoh after 40 years in the desert, and he goes, let my people go. Right? Yeah, Moses comes in, and he brings the Israelites out, and they get to leave Egypt after all the plagues. And they go out there, and they come, they cross the Red Sea, and then they come into the desert, and then they're walking around the desert, and they're trying to figure out, how do we get along? Because what, has the, what have they been? They've been slaves. They've not had their own commerce. They've not had their own ability to create. Like, I'm going to have a company. They were slaves. What were they building? What were they making when they were slaves? Bricks. They were making bricks so that they could build the pyramids and so they could build all the great things in Egypt. So this is what they were doing for hundreds of years. This was what was in their DNA of their society. This is what they believed about themselves is that all that they were worth was what they could produce. All that they were worth, they had to get up in the morning and they had to work hard. If a man got up and he could not produce, what was Pharaoh going to do to his wife and his kids? So it was very important that he produced, right? So, so here's, here's Pharaoh. So Moses brings them out and then they go to Mount Sinai and God gives them the law. And he tells them, this is how I want you to live. And then God says, Moses, write down Genesis, write down this story. Because I want to tell my people something really, really amazing in this creation story of how the creation of the world happened. There were a lot of creation stories in a lot of the different civilizations around it. God said, I'm, I'm going to take all those creation stories and I'm going to show you how it really happened. Because it, through, through this creation story, I want them to know my heart. 
and I want them to know how much I care about them. So I'm going to come back to that in a second. So we've got all these different things. Here's another thing that shows us that this was a beautiful poem. Okay, now in a second, maybe in five or ten minutes, I'm going to, I'm going to get to something. Right now you're like, I don't really care about all these details in Genesis 1. I can't even get along with my roommates, right? Or I've got to figure out how to pay my bills. Give me something I can use. So if you hang on for about 12 and a half minutes, I'm going to give you something more spiritual that you can use. But in the meantime, I want to kind of go through some detail stuff. Like I'm going to get really geeky about Genesis chapter 1, okay? So if you want to be geeky, get geeky with me. If you don't want to, then just, chill, you know, just veg out for a second. I'll tell you when to zone back in. Is everybody with me on that? Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, day number 1 was the light and the darkness. Day number 2, God created the water and the sky. Day number 3, the land and the seas. Day number 4, the sun, moon, and the stars. Day number 5, the fish and the birds. 6, the animals and the humans. Now, here's what is really interesting, is that on days 1 through 3, God separates things. And days 4 through 6, he fills the things that he separated. So day number 1, he separated the light from the darkness. Day number four, he, he filled that light in the darkness with sun, the moon, and the stars. Day number two, he separated the water and the sky. Day number five, he filled the water and the sky with fish and birds. Day number three, he separated the land and the seas. Day number six, he filled it with animals and humans. Is that cool or what? I mean, seriously, you got to think about it. That is beautiful. I, all right, I know. I, okay, all right. I'll prove something else to you then. All right, now, let's go to this. All through... Oh, man, I, for, I forgot my notes that I wanted to share with you are sitting at home on my desk. It's all right. I'll see what I can do by memory. There are patterns of three all throughout Genesis chapter 1, okay? There's all kinds of patterns of three. First of all, the, the threefold nature of God is expressed in Genesis chapter 1. And then there are... Um, other things that are really cool that are, are patterns of three, and it's really awesome. Then if you have patterns of three, you also have patterns of seven. And all through it, there are patterns of seven. For instance, in, G in Genesis verse one, uh, there are seven words. In verse number two, there's 14 words. In verse number five, there are 35 words. There are seven times that God says something, one of the really important things, and I'm just killing myself. Because it, it was in my other bag. I'm so sorry. But And then there's ten times. If there's patterns of three and there's patterns of seven, then you get to where there's patterns of ten. And God is – there's, there's uh, ten times that God says um, – and uh, where, where it says make, the, the phrase make. And then there's ten times where God says, and it was so. And so there's all these things that as you see this poem going on that are just so cool and everything is amazing. Is anybody getting excited yet? Okay, all right, all I got four minutes left before you need to check back in, all right? So now, anybody know what this picture is from? National Treasure, very good. What was Nicolas Cage doing in National Treasure? Stealing a what? He was stealing the Declaration of Independence. He, was steal he had to go in and steal the Declaration of Independence. It's very similar to the Constitution, Steve. Yes, yeah, it, it was good. You had the right idea. Uh, just not quite there. So he was going to steal the Declaration of Independence because why? Does anybody remember the story? Remember the plot of the movie? There was a key to a map. On the back of the Declaration of Independence, if you look at it a certain way and stand on one leg and turn around three times, then this magic thing would appear on the back of the Declaration of Independence, and you would find that the, the way to get to where the treasure was. There was a treasure on the map. There was a, or a, there was a treasure map on the Declaration of Independence that led you to the treasure. In the same way, God puts hidden treasures, hidden maps 
all throughout the scriptures, especially all throughout the Old Testament and throughout the book of Genesis. And right here in Genesis chapter 1, there is a really amazing treasure map. Now, in this thing, this was hidden so that people could not find the treasure. But God's treasure map is there in order that we will find the treasure. God doesn't want to keep it hidden from us. He did it this way so that as we're reading it and as we're looking into it, it reveals how awesome and how wonderful and how beautiful God is. These treasures are not hidden so that we don't find them. They're hidden so that we do find them and then find something out great about God, which is really cool. Chiasm. Anybody heard this word before? I had never really heard this word before, but chiasm is a really cool word. It's fun to say, uh, but here's the, 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 the point of a chiasm. If you want to look at a chiasm, it's basically like uh, there, are, there are bookends on either side of something, and then as you move towards the center, you find the treasure in the middle. And there, this is a literary device that is used in a lot of ancient Hebrew, and so it's all over the Old Testament that there are these, that when, when you, have you ever been reading the Old Testament and there's like strange repetition? And like when Noah comes out of the ark and it says, and Noah made a covenant with the Lord and, and he was never going to destroy the earth and because God made a covenant with Noah. And so then he wasn't going to destroy the earth because God made a covenant. And then they were going to make a covenant so that they wouldn't have to destroy the earth. Like strange repetition. You're like, why does it do that? Anytime that's happening, that is a chiasm that is pointing you to something really cool that's in the middle that God wants you to see. So in Genesis chapter 1, there's this really cool chiasm I'm going to show you. So we're back to this. Everybody with me on this? So now this one is where it goes, uh, it's A, B, C, and then it repeats itself A, B, C. The idea repeats itself. I promise you this is going to blow your mind in a second, okay? So this is the one I told you about a while ago where the light and the darkness corresponds with the sun, moon, and the stars. Day one corresponds to four, two to five, three to six, which is A, B, C, and A, B, C. So in terms of the content of this poem, this is a chiasm that goes A, B, C, A, B, C. Now, God, because he's just awesome and did not want to be outdone, also created a chiasm about the size of the paragraphs that he was writing. And in this, in this chiasm, it goes A, B, C, C, B, A. So uh, paragraph A about the light and the darkness is a little baby paragraph. It's a small one. If you look at it in the NIV, it's kind of a smaller one. The second one, paragraph two, is a little bit bigger. It's like a mommy paragraph. Paragraph three is like a big one. It's daddy paragraph. It goes on and on. And then paragraph four is also a big one, and then paragraph five comes down a little bit smaller. Paragraph six would have been a normal baby chiasm, except that's he also, he created man, and so then it goes on and on about man. But in this one, it goes A, B, C, C, B, A. So it's either A, B, C, A, B, C, or A, B, C, C, B, A. Now, does this matter for you in your life when you're trying to figure out if you can forgive the person that cuts you off at the red light? <laughs> yes, it does. Because this teaches you about the character and the nature of God. So just hang with me here. If you're starting to get bored, just hang in there with me a little bit longer, okay? Okay, because this, I think this stuff is so cool. Remember, this is the beginning. This is Genesis chapter 1. And this is what God is showing to the Israelites when they're just coming out of Egypt. And they're just trying to figure out how to become people themselves. They're trying to figure out how to trust the story. They're trying to figure out, can this God that brought us through the Red Sea be trusted? Can I trust him with my problem? And the answer is always yes. So now, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, it says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. So it started with nothing. At the beginning of this poem, it started with nothing. Like a rest. Now at the end of this poem, what happens in day 7? God creates the Sabbath. 
and he rested from all of his labor at the end of the poem. So the beginning of the poem is rest, the end of the poem is rest. That signals a chiasm because you see these two things, these bookends on either side. Now, if you take these, the rest of the beginning and the rest at the end and you start counting words in the Hebrew backwards towards the center, you end up with one word in the center of this poem. You know what it is? Yes, you do. Moab. I knew it. You guessed it, didn't you? All of you guessed that. You knew that word. Everybody say Moab. Moab, right? Okay, now Moab is a Hebrew word. And, and this, here, I'll, I'll actually show you where it is in the English. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, or for Moab, and for days and years. So right here in the, or in the ESV is translated as seasons. And the NIV is translated as sacred times. But this is one of the four words, Moab is one of the four words that we tend to translate as Sabbath. So whenever you see the word Sabbath, it very well could come from Moab. So Moab talks about either the seasons, but the whole point of it is a rest. It is a Sabbath. And so God created the moon and the stars and everything else so that it would help us understand when it is time to rest. So at the beginning, God is in rest. And then he creates this stuff, and at the end, God is in rest. And then right there in the middle of this chiasm, what he wants his people to understand is that rest is what he wants for them. Now, why is this important for the Israelites who just came out of Egypt, who believed that their value was only based on their production? He wanted them to know that it wasn't about what they could produce, that he didn't love them because of what they could do, that he wanted to have this relationship with them. He wanted them to rest. The most important thing that they could do was rest. Do you remember when it said, and there was evening and there was morning the first day? Yeah. Why did God say evening and morning? We don't say that, do we? When does our day start? When your alarm goes off, starts in the morning, right? You get up, you got your to-do list, you crank through your to-do list, and then you get done at the end of the day, and then you what? You rest. But God was saying, no, 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 I want you to rest first. This is how your day starts. You rest. Your day starts with me. Your day starts with your value in me. Not because of what you produce, but because of who I am and who I have made you to be. Now this, I can't read this, think about this, or talk about this without getting choked up. Because this tells me something about who God is. God's not just out there wanting me to be perfect and wanting me to do everything good and get my to-do list done. God's not worried about me doing everything exactly right and making sure that I'm super effective and super productive. Now, do I want to do those things? Absolutely. It's actually been one of my prayers my entire Christian life. God, help me be effective and productive for you. But that's not where my value comes from. It's not where my worth comes from. God is like, you are awesome, and I want you to rest. So his first message to his people as he brought them out of Egypt was, you are loved and you are valued and you can rest in me. What does Jesus say in Matthew? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Right? This is God's message to us. This is what Jesus said. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just be with me and rest. Hopefully, if you've checked out, you've checked back in. Because this is what I want you to be getting. This is what I want you to hear is how awesome it is to follow a God 
that would love us so much that he would tell us, just rest. Just rest. This is the God that we follow. And if that's the God that we follow, we can trust him. We can trust a God that loves us that much. Your value is not based on your production. Your value is not based on what you do. You are loved because God made you in his image and he thinks you're awesome. And that's it. So can you trust the story? Yeah. When things feel really difficult and challenging, how do you know if you can trust the story? Well, you go, can I trust the storyteller? All right, well, who's the storyteller? It's God. What did he do with his people? He told them he loved them. He told them to rest. So I can trust that. I can trust that storyteller. What happens when you're having a conflict with your roommate, with your spouse, with your parents? What happens when you feel like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I've, I've had moments, and, and you know, spoiler alert, but within the church, within the Christian fellowship, you get to points where you can at times get really frustrated with people. I don't know if anyone has ever experienced this or thought this, but it's not always the easiest thing to be completely overflowing with the fruits of the Spirit. Now, we want to be that way, and I wish I was that way, but the truth is sometimes people are just annoying, and they're hard to get along with. And I am just annoying, and I'm hard to get along with. And then I hurt people's feelings, and they hurt my feelings. And then, like, okay, well, I'm going to say I forgive you because I know I'm supposed to forgive. That's what the Bible says. But then at the end of the day, when you're at home at night and you turn off the light and you're just about to go off to sleep, you know that seed of bitterness is in your heart because it comes up to your mind when things are quiet. It's a sign that maybe you haven't really forgiven. You need to do some work on that. And this is, this is what I've been really trying to deal with. Is like, God, how do, I, how do I really allow my heart to be pure? And sometimes I want to make decisions, but the justifications for the decisions I'm making, you know, are really is, well, if I make this decision, then somebody else is going to have to deal with the consequences. Yeah. I mean, that's embarrassing. That was what I realized yesterday I was doing. I was having a conversation with somebody, and I realized, oh, that's, that's what's going on in my heart. I don't want to be like that. So when I come to those points where I don't really know if I can forgive, or I come to those points where it's hard to trust somebody else's motive or their heart for me, I come back to this story about God putting this beautiful poem in Genesis chapter 1 and expressing to his people how much he loved them and how much he wanted them to rest. And it reminds me that he can be trusted, that the storyteller is good, and that the story can be trusted. And so I tell myself, Okay, how's this going to work out? I don't know, but trust the story. Yeah, but what about this? I mean, I have a meeting tomorrow night with our finance committee. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you guys, all your financial issues just always go really well. Uh, but when we have issues, we have meetings with our finance committee, sometimes they can get a little bit, uh, people have different opinions about things, you know? And uh, so I'm gearing up. I'm gearing up for this finance committee. How, how am I going to do? I'm going to trust the story. God's going to work it out. There's, there's some people uh, recently that left our church, and apparently, now I'm hearing about it, are really upset with, with me. But they, they didn't tell me about it, but they're telling a lot of other people about it after they left the church. What am I going to do about that? I'm going to trust the story. God will work it out. 
I was preaching this morning at the turning point. I had an opportunity to say something that would have been a little zinger about that. I was tempted because I want to look good. I want people to feel like, oh, poor Jay. I was like, no, Jay, trust the story. God will work it out. Just be righteous, say the right thing, encourage people. God will work it out. I don't like that. I would much rather, you know, do the little sound bite and little one-liners. But that's not what God wants. God wants me to trust the story. I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to trust the story. As you guys are going through whatever phase you're going through in your church here, just trust that God has a plan for you and he's going to work it out. And it's going to be good. You don't have to control it. You don't have to step in and make sure that something happens the way that you want. You can trust that God will work it out. You need to be present. You need to be available. And you need to be righteous. And then God will work everything else out. You need to take a deep breath. You need to forgive. If you've got areas in your heart that are not forgiven and you're having a hard time wrestling through it, talk about it. Get with somebody that you trust and confess it. Just say it out loud. That's what I was able to do yesterday with a a friend of mine. As we were talking, I was like, oh, dude, I I can't do that because my heart's not right. The decision actually might be the right thing for me right now. But I can't make that decision until my heart is pure about it. I can't take that action until my heart is pure about it. Do you understand what I'm saying with that? Okay. So this is, this is what we do. We realize our value. We realize God is good. We trust the story. And then I just want to encourage you to do this. Make space for God, and he will fill it. See, God is a God that wants to know you and wants to spend time with you. And if you make space for him, he will immediately. Well, actually, no, I shouldn't say immediately. If you make space for him and you are patient, he will fill it. And he wants to fill it. Now, in our church culture for years and years, it's always been a formula of, I mean, you have to have a quiet time. So you get up in a certain time to be able to sit down and read your Bible, and then you have a certain amount of minutes that you pray, and then that's your quiet time. I want to encourage you, like, think differently about this. I want you to make space for God in your life. And allow him to come in and allow him to fill it. Sometimes, sometimes it's just solitude and just silence and just sitting for a long time. Like, okay, I mean, it, it, you know, maybe like over 30 seconds you might have to be silent. Okay? That's a little bit of a joke. But it's hard for us to be silent sometimes. But just reading, reading a passage, meditating on a worship song, and then just sitting in silence for God to speak. Because God has something that he wants to tell you. But I'm, honestly, I'm many times too busy to be able to hear from it. I mean, I'll read. I, I've got, I read my stuff every day. I've got the discipline to do that. And, and, and I'm definitely, Tracy and I pray together. We get up and walk every morning. We pray together. We've got a list of stuff that we're always praying for. But beyond that, I'm too, I get too busy because I've got stuff to do and there's messages to look at or, or um, um, there's, there's a, a, some really awesome games that I have on my phone that, that, I, that I play and I'm trying to get past level 210. And it's, it's really frustrating me right now, and I can't seem to get past it. You know, so there's, there's stuff that, that comes in, so I'm trying to stop, take a break, and go back, make space for God. Yeah. Five minutes here, ten minutes here. But God, what, what do you want to say to me right now? Okay, I'm going to walk in the house for dinner. we got the family coming over. Take five minutes, ten minutes, pray. God, what do you want me to hear right now? 
Make space for God and he will fill it. See, this is who our God is. This is who the storyteller is that will come in and will help you. So, you know, it's uh, so funny. I'm used to, at, at, uh, at the turning point, we preach and then we go into communion. And um, so I'm very used to that. <laughs> so I'm going to, uh, but we already, we already did communion. We took communion, right? Okay, I got I to gotta trust the story. Okay, so in that case... Uh, but now, what, what's, the, what, what's the appropriate way? So am I supposed to get really loud and then scream to God be the glory and then walk off? Is that, is that how I finish it? Is that how I'm supposed to finish it? Mic drop and then I can leave? All right. Um, on, on a serious note, I just thank, thank you for letting me share this with you. I hope it was helpful for you today. And I pray that, that God will really work in it and through it. So there you go. Love you guys.